0: We will be continuing our study in James, called Born-Again Behavior. Last week, we looked at James's final warning against worldliness at the end of chapter 4, where he exhorted us to do the right thing, which is to repent of our arrogant presumptuousness and evil boasting, to include God in our planning, really at all times, and to humbly acknowledge God's sovereignty and will over our lives and endeavors. Chapter 5 begins with a fiery rebuke against the rich who were exploiting the poor. They were wealthy farmers who owned large tracts of land and were squeezing everyone and everything for profit. Some commentaries suggest that the rich in this text were non-believing Jewish countrymen who lived in this community and attended the church or churches James wrote to. This theory is based on the devastating judgment James says will come upon them at the end of verse three. It says, "We'll eat your flesh like fire." That, in my opinion, sounds like eternal torment and hell. And we know that Christians will never experience this. So the theory could be true. The fact that James's favorite title for fellow believers, fellow Christians which is brothers, is absent from verses 1 through 6, also supports that theory. But knowing precisely whom James addressed here is not highly important, because the warnings he gave apply to everyone, unbelievers and believers alike. Please take your Bibles and turn to James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I have entitled this message, Riches that rot and corrode. Let's read our text, pray for God's help, and then get to work. The text says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Father, we call upon you now for your help. We pray that you help us see the truth, hear the truth, believe the truth, and obey the truth. Father, teach us about the dangers of riches and the temporality of riches. And teach us, once again, where to put our hope And that should be in you and in you alone. So we commit this time to you. We pray that you teach us, that you convict us, and that you help us obey and live out the scriptures for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that we've read our text and prayed for God's help, let's begin at verse 1. This is the next thing that James says. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James begins his fiery rebuke with a call for the unbelieving rich to weep and howl because of the miseries that are coming upon them. What miseries was he referring to? He was referring to miseries that are associated with final judgment and the divine punishment that immediately follows. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. Steve Lawson, wrote an excellent article on final judgment. Here is a portion from it. He said, Looming on the horizon of eternity, there is coming a terrifying final day of judgment. This world is spinning through space on a collision course with this final day of reckoning. Known as the Great White Throne Judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, this climactic hour of reckoning before God is described in numerous places throughout Scripture. The Book of Romans identifies it as the Day of Wrath, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Jude calls it the Day of Great Judgment, Jude chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This day is fast approaching, a final judgment day in which God will hold court, and all the world will stand trial before him. In this final judgment, God will open the books and present his case. Every lost sinner will be individually summoned to take his stand before the divine judgment bar, where every unbeliever will have his day in court before the Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence will be presented, and it will be an irrefutable case presented by God himself. Every lost sinner will be judged, and God will announce his just verdict and condemn every unbeliever to eternal torment in hell. There will be no rebuttal offered, no defense rendered, and no sympathy extended. There will be no grace, no advocate to defend the sinner, and no miscarriage of justice. There will be no successful appeal by the guilty, and no parole from prison as an escape. This is the judgment James is pointing to. Now, the Greek word for howl is loluza which means to cry aloud in misery. When the unbelieving rich have their day in court at the great white throne, they will weep and howl in utter misery when their wealth and possessions are used against them as evidence for their unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ and also for all of the injustices that they've committed. The objects in which they placed their trust will be used as nails in their own coffins, so to speak. So the warning we see here in verse 1 is very simple. Those who trust in wealth rather than in Christ alone will face judgment, and the objects of their trust will be used to testify against them and thus seal their doom. Now James is not the only person in Scripture to issue a warning against trusting in riches. Scripture is actually replete with similar warnings. I can give you some Old Testament examples. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, it says, those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous, the righteous is those who trust in God, they will thrive like a green leaf. And then in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7, uh, the word of God says this concerning Moab, since you trust in your deeds and riches, you, too, will be taken captive, and Kimosh will go into exile together with his priests and officials. And then in the New Testament, we have many examples. I can give you a couple of those. After the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up his idol to become a disciple, Jesus taught his disciples that it is impossible for one who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. We see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. And lastly, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says very plainly, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. In the next two lines, James describes the temporality of physical riches. Let's move to verses 2 through 3a. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Right here, James identifies the three primary sources of wealth in his day. Harvested grain, fine clothing, and precious metals. The rich, he addressed here in his letter, had diverse portfolios. They owned grain, they owned garments, and they owned gold and silver, all three. But James tells them that their riches, their grain, has rotted. Their garments, fine clothing, are moth-eaten, and their gold and silver have corroded. This was his way of saying, physical riches do not last. It was also his way of saying, or warning them, against the spiritual impact that riches can have. They have the power to corrode the soul and make one blind to their true need, salvation in Christ alone. Jesus called this soul-corroding power the deceitfulness of riches in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. And this is why R. Kent Hughes called wealth a spiritual handicap. Now, that statement from him is very contradictory to what people think today. They think that that wealth is a total advantage, and there are many in the church that think that as well. But Kent Hughes has it right. He says that it is a spiritual handicap. Why? Because it corrodes the soul and prevents it from seeing its true need. The rich young ruler and Simon Magus and we see Simon Magnus in Acts 8, 18-23. They are prime examples of soul corrosion and the spiritual blindness it produces. They chose riches over salvation. How foolish! For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, verse 26. The question I have for us at this point is... Do we understand the temporality of physical riches? I ask this question because I know many Christians who don't seem to get it or understand that. They put a lot of stock in riches. They meticulously manage their savings accounts, retirements, and stock portfolios. And when you talk to them about this or ask them about it or even challenge them in a loving way, What they do is they call this being a good steward. Well, the Bible does not equate the amassment of riches to good stewardship. And we know that leaving an inheritance for your children's children is wise, according to Proverbs 13.22. But the Hebrew word for inheritance means more than money and possessions. It includes godly character, integrity, and trustworthiness. So leaving a a good inheritance for your children and your children's children is not just leaving them stacks and stacks of cash and possessions. Uh, What is mostly valuable in an inheritance would be godly character, integrity, and trustworthiness. You know, teaching them to love Jesus, that's what's most important. In Scripture, Good stewardship is defined not by what you have, but by how you use it. If we employ our wealth and resources for spiritual causes, the advancement of the gospel, the expansion of God's kingdom, and for the good of God's people, we are good stewards. But if we spend our wealth only on ourselves and families, we are not good stewards. Jesus warned against amassing earthly treasures. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. The wealthiest man who ever lived understood the temporality of physical riches. And that was King Solomon. He wrote, Riches do not last forever, and the crown might not be passed to the next generation. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 24. The corona. Virus, which is something that we're dealing with today, and I'm stuck in my house because of it, it reminds us of the temporality of physical riches. On Wednesday, March 25th, Fox Business reported, and I quote, U.S. stocks plunged again amid fears of the economic impact of the virus, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing below 20,000. At one point, all the gains from the Trump era were wiped out before recovering slightly. On Thursday, April 2nd, the New York Times reported, Thousands of taxpaying businesses are losing revenue because of stalled operations, and some might be forced to close permanently. Here's the bottom line. Riches rot, get eaten, and corrode. They do not last but the spiritual impact they can have can last into eternity. Let's move to verse 3b. James says, And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. If a person does not repent of their reliance on riches and put their trust in Christ alone, the spiritual impact is devastating. The riches they amassed will be used as evidence against them at the great white throne. While pointing to their riches, Christ might say something like this to wealthy unbelievers. You rejected me and chose riches as your salvation. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Acts chapter 8 verse 20. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4a. It truly is. It will save no one. And after the verdict is rendered, the rich, unbelieving folks shall be cast into the lake of fire, which is hell, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, along with their riches, and the corrosion from their riches, shall eat their flesh like fire. Like I said earlier, believers will not be subjected to this final judgment or the torments of hell which immediately follow. But as Christians, we still need to be careful regarding riches because they are alluring and very dangerous. We mustn't forget the words of Paul to his young protege Timothy. He said, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10. In the rest of the section, James identifies four worldly reactions that flow from an attachment to riches. Let's begin with the first one. Number one, hoarding. We see this in verse 3c. James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The rich people James addressed were financial hoarders. They amassed personal wealth and kept it all to themselves. They were stingy penny pinchers like Ebenezer Scrooge from the famous uh, Dickens novel. Poor folks in their community and church needed grain for bread, needed clothing for their bodies, and needed gold and silver coins to pay their bills. But these ungodly misers offered no help. It was totally within their ability to meet the basic needs of their neighbors without much financial impact on themselves, but they selfishly refused riches can have this kind of effect on us. When we come into a little bit of money, the temptation to keep it to ourselves arises. We can feel that pull, and we often give in to that pull, don't we? In the 1970s, there was a 71-year-old woman who died of malnutrition in Florida. Prior to her death, she begged for food from neighbors and gotten what clothes she had from the Salvation Army. From all appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. When the coroner's office removed her emaciated 50-pound body from her home, they noticed piled up boxes and trash everywhere. She was a hoarder. While searching through her stuff, they found two keys to safe deposit boxes at two separate banks. When they went to the first bank and opened the safe deposit box, they found 700 AT&T stock certificates, hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, and 200,000 in cash. When they went to the second bank, and opened the safe deposit box. They found no certificates, but $600,000 in cash. This old woman had more than enough money to eat well, clothe herself, and take care of others. But she selfishly hoarded it to the point of starving herself to death. It's so sad. And this is another example of the deceitfulness of riches, that when we begin to save, there's a temptation just to keep hoarding and amassing and never using it for anything. saving it for a rainy day, and so often when those rainy days come, we don't even dip into it or use it for its specific purpose. How do we know if we have an attachment to riches? Do we hoard what we earn or receive? Do we keep it to ourselves. R. Kent Hughes wrote While the Bible does not discourage saving and prudential provision for one's needs, it is dead set against the vast accumulation of self directed wealth focused solely on perpetuating one's own comforts and pleasures. Let's move to number two, and that would be fraud. We see that in verse 4a. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The rich people James addressed were also swindlers. They hired laborers to mow their grain fields, but when it came time to pay their wages, they refused to do so. The phrase kept back by fraud, indicates that the rich deceived the laborers into thinking they would be paid for their services. They basically defrauded the laborers of their labor. Now, the Old Testament repeatedly warns against defrauding workers. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13 says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker." overnight. And a little further back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 14 to 15, it says, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Now, it's pretty obvious that James had this text from Deuteronomy in mind, because in verse 4b, he said what? And the riches of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The title, Lord of hosts, is a name for God, and it appears 235 times in the Bible. The Greek word for hosts is sabaoth, which means army. So, Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. Now, the question arises, which armies does our Lord lead? He leads heaven's armies. Matthew 26, verse 53, Revelation chapter 9, verse 14. So, the end of verse 4 can be rendered the Lord of heaven's armies. This is precisely how the New English translation renders it. It says, Look, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. When this portion was read aloud, the laborers who had been defrauded were probably comforted by the fact that their cries had reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. They knew the Lord would avenge them. James made this totally clear. Now, how do we know if we have an attachment to riches? Do we commit fraud? Do we not pay our employees, landscapers, mechanics, or those who perform other services for us what they are worth or on time? Or at all? R. Kent Hughes said, Christian employers, it is far better to pay your employees what they are worth and to provide good benefits than to increase your profit. All who employ others must ask themselves if there are any voices calling out to God because of them. Now let's move to number three self-indulgence. We see this in verse 5. James said, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The rich people James addressed also lived luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyles, the ancient equivalent of lifestyles of the rich and famous defrauding the laborers certainly helped them accomplish this. James's reference to luxury is very descriptive in the Greek. It can be rendered, You have lived delicately, soft, pampered lives. His mention of self-indulgence evokes the wasteful living of the prodigal son. In Greek, the phrase, You have fattened your hearts, paints a striking picture of oppressive, self-indulgent robbers who have satiated themselves on the plunder taken from their victims. Is this not what the rich were doing? They were fattening themselves on the wages they stole from the harvesters. The phrase, in a day of slaughter, refers to coming judgment. James uses vivid language to depict them as fattened calves headed for the slaughterhouse of divine judgment. How do we know if we have an attachment to riches? Do we live luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyles? Are we fattening ourselves while our brothers and sisters in Christ go hungry? Arkant Hughes, again, he said, There are times for sumptuous celebration, holidays, birthdays, or anniversaries. There are times to feast and lavish our loved ones. But a life of conspicuous consumption, delicate, soft luxury, is not Christian. And lastly, the final worldly reaction that flows from an attachment to riches is number four, murder. James says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The rich people James addressed were also murdering the poor, not through physical violence, but by taking away their means of making a living, by defrauding the laborers. Hughes calls it judicial murder. The phrase, he does not resist you, does not mean that the poor put forth no resistance, like they sat there doing nothing while the rich trample on them. It means that they could not resist the rich in court, because the rich controlled the courts. The rich had not only stripped them of their wages and livelihood. They had stripped them of their legal rights and ability to be heard in a non-partisan, unbiased court of law. James calls this wicked combination murder. It was as if he had said, By robbing the poor of their livelihood and taking away their legal right to defend themselves in court, you have condemned and killed them. How do we know if we have an attachment to riches? Do we cause others harm by depriving them of what they are entitled to as we pursue our livings? According to James, business practices such as this are, in a sense, murderous. Closing If we have an attachment to riches, one, if not all of these worldly reactions, will be present. Do we hoard? Do we commit fraud? Do we self-indulge? Do we murder? If the answer is yes, we must do something about it. We need to heed James's warnings and repent. If we are born-again believers, true Christians, we must break our attachment to riches, restore our trust in Christ alone, put an end to our worldly reactions, and become good stewards who use what we have to store up treasures in heaven for the glory of God. This is the right thing to do, and we know it. But if we fail to do what is right, we sin. Chapter 4, verse 17. If we are unbelievers, we must cast down the idol of riches, which can never make us whole, never give us true security, never give us a true sense of purpose and never save us from judgment. And we must put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe in him and in his finished work, that he lived for our righteousness, died to pay for our sins, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell, for us, we shall be cleansed of all sin, we shall be made right with God. We shall be saved from judgment. And we shall begin a new life as adopted sons or daughters of the one true God. I'd like to end with a great verse where Paul teaches Timothy how to minister to rich people in his congregation at the church of Ephesus. We find it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment.